Hello world, it's Jason Smith and welcome back to the Sales Synergistics Podcast. Very excited today to have Ken Lundin joining us for a great conversation about uh, the philosophies and strategies that we both employ in our respective consulting businesses. And it's always great to have another Georgia Bulldog on the line. How you doing, Ken? I'm good, man. How are you today? Fantastic. And uh, for those of you all who uh, are looking to collect some more information about strategies and concepts, uh, tune in today for this episode of the Sales Synergistics Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Lundin, I'm very happy to have you on. Uh, we've been uh, working together for a while since you came and joined Aslan Training. Isn't that right, sir? Yeah, it's great. I'm excited about that relationship that uh, we've been able to start with Aslan. And uh, it was awesome to be able to sit in and, and watch you do your magic with a group right there at the uh, you know Aslan International Headquarters, as it were, right here in uh, Atlanta, Georgia area. Yeah, that's right. You you met me while I was on display. You got to see me training another group of people, and that's how we met. Uh, but you've been at this for a, a little bit longer than me, actually. You've been training and consulting for some time. Why don't you uh, share some of your story and background with the uh, the world here? Sure. I mean, probably the you know the the relevant stuff only. Hopefully, right? Um, yeah, actually, you know, it's uh, the thing that everybody says, right? Been in sales uh, since I was you know selling my mom on getting me ice cream from the ice cream truck, but ultimately been in sales, sales leadership, sales sales uh, executive, senior VP, chief sales officer. You know, and and boots on the ground every single day for uh, for quite some time. Been consulting to companies big and small now for oh probably just a little bit over three years. Kind of taking that experience that I had growing and doubling the sales forces, um, really to help drive sales alpha for sales organizations. So um, it's a, a fantastic run. Love serving the clients, and you know we're out there just grinding it out, doing our best to help change the world of sales. Man, it's fantastic. And uh, in the process of maybe name dropping a few of those companies, tell me a little bit about why you chose to make that move to working on your own. I know how I got there, but let me hear your path. How did you wind up working on your own here? Yeah, I mean, it's in, could, it could be interesting or it could not be. I mean, I guess ultimately it depends who's listening to it. Um, spent a lot of time in sales and I'd say my bailiwick. I've been with some very large companies over the course of my career, but um, I, for the most part, what you could say is I was kind of a turnaround specialist. You can really fit into that kind of small business mantra as they're talking about now, below 500 employees, um, and really trying to come in when either things were one of two things, right? We're trying to turn around a business that had been having problems, sales had been stalling, and flip that switch, or trying to step on it and push it into hyper growth because the market or the industry might have been heating up and they were looking for an acquisition down the road. Well, we did that the last couple the last couple runs out it did that had some great impact with some of the companies that I was with as far as building sales forces and sales uh-huh. um, and then when it was time to look for the next thing I started flew around the country and started interviewing with people and I realized that you know the the skill set that I'd honed over the years was sorely lacking across a lot of companies and really felt that the best way to make an impact and and impact more people and impact more individuals and companies was actually be able to serve more than one company at a time. So move myself over into the world of consulting 
you know, had a great start with Span the Chasm and have moved on to Ken Lundin and Associates at this point. Um, and really just love what we're able to do and the influence that we're able to bring for, you know, there's local companies like, you know, Big Nerd Ranch is an example here in the Atlanta area that does mobile app development for, you know, the top, anything from the, you know, the top 10 in the uh, Fortune 500 all the way down to some small startups um, yeah. to also working with some much larger companies um, throughout the world. Excellent. Excellent. I, I know for myself, uh, it was a matter of leaving corporate America and saying, what can I do with what I have right now? And my perspective was always from that of a frontline seller. I did not work in the uh, VP levels and, and run global strategic sales teams or anything like that. But I noticed that what was lacking among most of the people I was talking to was an understanding of what was happening down at the ground level with the frontline sellers. And there was so much top-down sales leadership that was disruptive to the people on the front lines that the seller's perspective became the foundation or the start uh, for my sales philosophy. Now, you've been on the grind the whole time. Even when you were uh, running sales teams, you stayed very close to that frontline seller. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's true. Even today, you know, I typically have one client that I'm working with where I'm serving as somebody who's actually interacting on a day-to-day basis with their client base. So it may be in a chief sales officer role, but it's running the sales processes that we teach. It's running the sales plays that we encourage and the frameworks that we use. So we run them every day. So, we, you know, you step in front of uh, our clients, you step in front of companies, you step in front of a sales force and say, you know what, this is how it's supposed to go. Let me tell you how I screwed this thing up last week and how I recovered from it. Because as much as we'd like to be a purely linear thing when we sell from one step to the next, you and I both know that stuff happens, you know, and uh, interesting times breed interesting processes sometimes. Right. I, I, I love, like you said, how did I mess this up? Here's the mistakes and the problems I made. I think a lot of people in leadership, they try to seem so perfect, but you learn a lot more from saying, hey, here's how I got these scars. Let me tell you why this other way will be more effective. And that's been very important for what I do. Yeah. Oh, that's just so perfect, Jason. I mean, that's the issue, right? We, it's not perfect. If, if the world was as perfect as, as our LinkedIn profiles, then nobody would have, would have ever failed. I mean, I've been part <laughs> of a you know, number one best-selling book that basically says, hey, look at me. I filed bankruptcy because I suck. You know, right. So uh, I've taken those beatings. And um, I think that makes it real for people when you're actually able to connect on a you know, human-to-human level with them. Look, I get it, man. You've got the, the, your people have personal lives and they've got things going on in their world. And so we've got to be able to connect with people on a, on a personal level or else nothing sticks. Yeah, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And again, the, the top down approach that I mentioned, uh, I think it's one of those things that starts to put wedges in the organization between sales and operations. Uh, I, I get the feeling that a lot of the companies I consulted with in my time, uh, IBM, Red Hat, all the other organizations I talked to when we're installing uh, these sales processes and selling softwares, uh, the, the challenges between sales and operations comes from people not having a clear understanding of what's happening at the ground level. And uh, the analogy I always made is that uh, when you look at the race car drivers, they're the ones telling the entire pit and crew chief and everybody else building the car what to do. And how to build it and make it better. It doesn't seem to flow that way in corporate America, though, does it? The people at the front line don't seem to have as much say in what's being built for them to drive. Is that right? 
Yeah, I would agree with you, but I think also that it's disjointed um, across departments in general. You know, it was interesting. What's been interesting for me is you know spending most of my time, you know, kind of in that smaller, um, smaller arena with less than 500 employees. You know, over the last probably six weeks, I've worked with a couple, you know, kind of Fortune 150 type companies, um, and they run into the exact same problems that that you do with a smaller organization. And so, the interesting thing. <laughs> or the funny thing to me is everybody in operations, software engineering, or finance tells the salesperson how they should sell, but the salesperson generally doesn't try to give them opinion on how to run the books, you know, or how to program the device. Yes. So, you know, I think ultimately, yeah, we may ignore the seller's perspective to some extent, um, but there's such a mishmash of uncoordinated information um, and there's a really poor job of delineating that in a way that is usable by the seller either. So you get sellers going out there without a synergistic process as an example, and they're all just going by the seat of their pants and you have more than half of a missing quota and you only have, you know, eight, the top 8% collect all, 80% of all commissions. I mean, it's right. ludicrous how bad it is when we start to ignore this stuff and how disjointed it can be. Yeah. That, that same uh, bell curve you just talked about is the same thing for revenue. It winds up being a few core clients. Ten percent of the revenue comes, eighty uh, percent of the revenue comes from only ten percent of the client base, uh, because you don't have sellers able to be consistent in their process and getting more revenue from larger chunks of of the business. So, um, and that's in the enterprise sales level. Again, sometimes at different uh, levels of sales, it looks different. How do you, in in your practice, start to bridge some of these gaps and, and close these, uh, solve these problems that we're addressing here? Well, I appreciate that question. I think, you know, the number one thing that, that we typically are looking, that I'm looking for is sales alpha, right? You know, alpha is a term that we, we I stole from the investment world and basically says, how much does this person or this manager or thing contribute above the benchmark? So, you know, if the S&P 500, you know, is a good measure of the stock market goes up 10, and there's an alpha of four, well, then you can expect that that particular uh, investment manager adds that much value. So maybe they get a return of 14% instead of 10%, just as a uh -huh. really crass example. So what I'm yeah. looking for is ways, you know, ways to seek out in the organization to add sales alpha. You know, it's funny, every manager, VP, and executive wants to say that what they're doing is impactful. But have you ever noticed, even when they tinker with the structure of the sales force, it's the exact same growth rate? Yeah, I do. So it's kind of their benchmark. So how do we truly align people to seek out that sales alpha where we're out, where our, us as an organization and our sellers are outperforming, where a disproportionate amount of them are above quota, where a disproportionate amount of the process drives them to beat those benchmarks. You know, so, you know, you and I are aligned on this, especially when you start to talk about kind of either frameworks that you use, process matters. You know, process right. matters and being able to, you know, create Salesforce Alpha. And it's, you know, what we use is something called double P squared to hunt for that sales alpha and align everybody appropriately. But, you know, I know that within your process, you know, very often you're trying to figure out how you can take the seller's perspective and, and then push that into helping them be successful. I mean, so mm -hmm. how are you doing it? Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, the way you're approaching it is from sort of a Lean Six Sigma kind of approach. You're looking at the numbers and, and uh, crunching them, and that's something you see reflected in the practice of sales ops. I think that's critical 
And it's important that uh, as a team, we all start to measure what salespeople are doing. I just finished talking to uh, uh, an operations uh, infrastructure expert, and they talked about how much they measure everything in order to do exactly what you talk about, to quantify what that alpha is. A lot of sellers don't do that. So I encourage a sales leader and sales teams to uh, do a better job of tracking everything that's in place, engage in a sales operations process. But more importantly, you've got to figure out the right attributions from those things you measure, right? It won't always just be a matter of uh, did we did we count how many calls we made? Like we need to analyze whether or not those calls were the ones that actually drove the revenue. And you can't do that without talking to the sellers. This is where the seller's perspective comes in because when you look at just the numbers alone, there can be a lot of false attribution. Well, this guy made more calls than the other one. Yeah, but you got to go look at what they said on the calls. And are the words that this person's using more impactful than the other one? Because you've got someone that's getting more revenue from fewer sales and fewer calls. And his approach is making more of an impact on the business than this other person that's doing it by the numbers. So for me, it's uh, not just a, a, a top-down numbers approach. But you have to actually get in with the seller and really get their perspective of what's actually causing the work to get the real attribution to why someone's successful and why they're not. Once you do that, you've got to across the sales team, pass on those best practices uh, again at ground level, not from the C-suite, but get sellers to share what they're doing and make sure that they're starting to standardize those um, not just metrics and numbers, but the intangibles of what you say, how you approach it, the stuff that we teach at Aslan. You know, what is your foundation approach to how you interact with clients? And that's the first part of getting that consistent alpha you talked about is measuring both sides, the metrics and the intangibles, the qualitative and the quantitative things that lead to results. That's the first part of what I do. And it does come from that that firsthand contact with the sellers. Well, and I think, but I, so here's where I lean against that a little bit. I, I do think that I'm just a big believer in bullshit doesn't work. Oh, yeah. Know? And so from that perspective, you know, every seller, you're going to say, like, try, try sending somebody a text to your managing. How's it going mm -hmm. today? Like, especially, you know, as the time of this recording, a lot of people are working remote. Send them a text. Ask them how it's going. Oh, it's going good. Need help with anything? Nope, I'm good. That's not true, right? Because we're not being specific. We're not being credible. Those right. types of things, you know, and I think, you know, you start with like the hunt for sales alpha starts at a larger level and it starts with the object. It starts with where can I be objective about this? But you don't use it the same way they traditionally have. Like people take these proven, these theoretically proven management approaches, mm -hmm. right? And then half their sales force doesn't make quota and they have a 30% turnover rate. Well, the reason is they don't go to the next level, which is, you know, as an example, you know, with Aslan, they teach a framework that I teach to the SDR teams that we work with after we've established kind of the macro level what we're trying to accomplish called 1033, right? And that stands right. for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, three minutes. Well, I've taken 12 hours to teach the 10 and the 30, which is 40 seconds of a call. Right. You know, you because what you have to understand, the other thing I think we have to lean into here is it can't just be the seller's perspective. We can't just push it from one seller to another. We have to start somewhere. And on top of that, we have to understand the friction points because what we're really talking about to improve the world of sales, to get a higher distribution and to enable sellers to, you know, let their spouse come home from work and not work, to move them into a top tier of income, we're talking about behavior change. Right. Right. And behavior yeah. change at the very fundamental root of it 
the first sense of friction, I'm going to go back to my old behaviors. Other, and I'm not going to make any success. I mean, really, let's look at this. You know, it's it is what it is. Sixty percent of America is obese, and there's very few people who will actually tell you, "Yeah, it's good for my health." We go back to the same behaviors that are easy, man. That's that's the deal. Right. Yeah. Well, that goes back to something else. When you when you try to balance everything specifically off of what uh, the people tell you they want or they need. Uh, it goes back to what uh, Henry Ford said. If I ask my customers what they said they needed or they wanted, they'd say a faster horse, right? Yep. So again, to your point about pushing back on the seller's perspective, in no way should you know the salesperson just tell the entire organization what they need to do, right? That's not what we're advocating. But I think that when people omit the those aspects of, hey, what is what is working for you? What are you seeing from your perspective? Uh, it leads to those things where you bring in this proven uh, off the shelf process that uh, academically it sounds good and accurate. But once you employ it, your numbers go down and your people want to leave. Uh, right. You have to build thing with their perspective as the starting point. The other thing, too, is when you talk about processes that you build, all the processes have to point back to some common North Star. And since every business is there to make money, if you push everything towards the success of the frontline seller, not just to close deals and get the transactions, but actually grow advocacy where your existing client base is one of your biggest sources for new business. If you can make those frontline sellers successful in that, then you've got a growing business. So there again, the seller's perspective or the impact on the seller, let not be your North Star. Uh, I think that's important for leaders to, to focus on top down. Yeah. Well, I mean, two things there, right? First of all, the reason everybody knows that it's easier to sell a referral, like close rates are double to triple what they are for a cold lead. Right. Okay. So if anyone listening to this right now, and if they get nothing else out of this and they turn off this podcast in 14 seconds, take this, they should take this note, systematize asking for referrals. Hmm. Right. When I go into a company and it's a turnaround and it's like, man, sales have been declining. The number one thing we do is we seek for refer we seek referrals and we go after our existing account base to grow the company. Right. Systematize the referral. Ask for it at the moment of highest affinity. Go get the referral, but do it. You've got to teach your sellers to do it. So that's kind of Absolutely. the, you know, kind of the first thing. And then as you talk about, yeah, they don't want to do it. I mean, let's look at I was with um, one of the top 10 largest companies in the world just last week. And here's where, here's where that gap really exists when you talk about not listening to the seller. Mm -hmm. It's the sales enablement world, man. It's the different, it's where marketing keeps pushing out content. There's some stat I saw last week said 90% of all marketing content is never used by sales. You want to talk about a function that's suffering that really needs people who can lean in and get sales leadership to work with another department in order to be more successful on the front lines. Right. And so that's what we're doing there is we're leaning into marketing going, yeah, it's great. That's cool. That's technical, but that's not going to help me sell anything. Right. So let's change that methodology there. So that's really one of those big gaps you're talking about where they're not listening to sales because they're telling the story two different ways. You know, I heard marketing talking about it from a product, product perspective and sales leadership was going, man, give us the story. Let us sell, let us show our sales force. Who's the customer? What are their pains? How do we solve those pains? not what's the newest part of our gadget, you know, function and feature. Um, so I think that's definitely, you know, one of those areas that you got to lean into where there's a gap that the seller's perspective has to be taken into, taken into account. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And bridging a gap like that when both sides don't necessarily want to talk to each other. There's been this uh, chasm that's grown that needs to be spanned. Thank you, Randy Remusma. You know, spanning the chasm between marketing and sales is something that has to be done from the top down. You need someone in the organization to say, I want an organization that has this kind of synergy. And the practice of building synergy, synergistics, is something that you need senior leadership to do to force those little points of integration. And again, going back to what's your North Star, you know, ask yourself, who needs the most success for the company to grow? Uh, arguably, you definitely want marketing to be successful and hit their numbers, but everybody else in the organization has some uh, weird metric that points back to supporting sales. So make that success of the sales team number one and see if you can get your organizations to focus on making sure they're successful. So are you creating the right marketing materials for them? Are you making sure that the operations team that holds the customer service processes are doing the things that is going to allow the sales team to get referrals from your existing clients. Uh, to that point, let me throw this out there. When people talk about the sales funnel, two things about the sales funnel that I force on everybody that you've got to accept this. Number one, your sales funnel is not shaped like a little triangle. It's hourglass shaped. It goes from this wide opening of all of your potential prospects and leads down through the transactions where you have only so many transactions you're closing at any given time the narrowest part of your funnel, but then it opens back up to everyone who's ever been an existing customer. You've got that entire wide opening on the other side where you should be mining that repeat business and your referrals and your advocacy. And that process you talked about systematizing advocacy, uh, I call that for, for my five ring framework, that's your advocacy marketing. What is that combination of sales and operations activities that keeps the promises that the sales teams made and also builds more loyalty and deepens the experience all the way through, again, incentives from the business for advocacy that are built in that operations has to support. So there's that one aspect. The other thing is you got to picture that funnel flipped. I hate people talking about the sales funnel. You drop your sales in at the top and they filter down to an operational uh, to a close. That's not it. It takes effort to move seller uh, to move buyers through the sales process. So you have to picture that sales funnel flipped. And as you take those touches, every one of those touches moves the seller up towards the purchase process, up towards advocacy, and time kills all deals. The gravity of just sitting in the funnel leads people away from your purchase and away from advocacy and not towards it. So picture your funnel as a flipped hourglass starting at the bottom with your prospects through your transaction up into advocacy that you have to constantly work to move people through. Now, how do you feel about that from a framework? Um, yeah, you know, I think it makes sense. I think I would, here's what I would say. Maybe, maybe even think about it this way. Think about your hourglass or your funnel, that it's got a bunch of big rocks in it, right? And the customer that's going to eventually close is the small rock in the midst of that. And it's through reshaping the way they think and believe how you can serve their needs that you're able to move and reshape the interior of that funnel, move the big rocks out of the way. And your prospect drops a little lower and drops a little lower. Cause yeah, there's absolutely friction um, in every deal. And unfortunately, you know, most of the time we're thinking about how we want to sell it. We're, you know, the, the company's thinking about why we want to sell it, you know, and the one thing we haven't talked about, none of that crap matters. What matters is this, 
what does your customer really need you to solve? Right? What are the? They're going to come to you with a set. I mean, what, Jason, I'll bet. I don't. You may be able to name it if you can name it. Do so. But if not, I'm going to ask you a question. When was the last time you bought something because you thought you had it, you needed needed it for a certain reason, but then you found out that there was something else that was actually even better? Can you can you recall a specific purchase or at least the idea of that? Yeah, you know, for me, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, this software I bought for editing uh, uh, what I'm using now for podcasting. I wasn't podcasting at the time, but I thought I was going to be uh, editing a few videos and stuff for work. And it sat on the shelf for forever, never touched it, didn't need it. And now when this need came up and I moved into podcasting, I already had the audio software in place. So that's the first thing that pops in the head because we're having to be doing a podcast right now. Yeah. And that's awesome. And that's exactly what happens. Like, you know what sales needs to figure out? What's the, what's the problem that their stuff really solves that no one's talking about? Because if you go and just try to take your, you know, Hey, my customer came to me because they want to buy because they want better reporting. That's not the way to good big deals. I mean, most of the time they come in and they find something else. So there's absolutely friction and we have to slow down the process to understand how we can best serve the customer via their known and latent needs, because often the latent needs are what lead to big deals. So I think that's kind of the first thing. Like think about if you think about that funnel and you think about, you know, kind of the big rocks moving out of the way to let a prospect drift through. And then the other thing is you were talking about it originally as you're talking about, you know, hey, these accounts and we talked about systematizing referrals, et cetera. Here's another one that everybody should write down. Look, whether you're using outreach or sales loft or one of these sales engagement platforms, don't do it just because you want to, instead of making, you know, having 75 calls scheduled, you want to have 150. I mean, be smart about it. Create cadences, create sequences that go after the sale, that ask for the referral, that show the kickoff or move from one group to another. Like right. use, use technology intelligently, man. Get out from behind the, the computer looking at it just because you're staring at numbers. I mean, right. everything a sales leader does should, should drive towards, how do I make my people more effective? Okay. So use those tools correctly. Go ahead, brother. Okay. No, I like it. So here's what I'm hearing. First of all, I, I, I want to put a pin in something. You talked about big rocks in the funnel and reshaping the funnel. I want to come back to your definition of the big rocks because I got a, something in my mind that I think you mean by that. Well, let's come back to that. But you just talked about uh, people, hey, don't try to make 150 phone calls just because you want to make 150 phone calls. That comes back to that false attribution, right? Yep. Um, sometimes less is more. Again, in the in the Aslan nomenclature, this disruptive truth that you don't necessarily need to make more phone calls to get better results. You need to make better phone calls, right? You need to get to a point where each call is more impactful. The other thing is with the, the mindset of that funnel being flipped and you have to push uh, your, your opportunities through the funnel, right? Picking the right ones to push on, picking the right activities to use is critical because while you're pushing on one deal to move it up through the funnel, then another one is going to be naturally affected by gravity and moving further away from a close or moving out of your, your user base. If you're talking about an existing customer, you're trying to push into advocacy, then you're having to choose where you put in your time and your work. So uh, it's important to make sure that you're not just looking at raw numbers, you're not just pushing metrics, and you're not giving your sellers extra work to do just for work's sake. You have to make sure that you're measuring and monitoring the right things to reshape the inside of your funnel, right? 
And as I, yeah. I talk myself back to your your term, talk to me about reshaping the inside of that funnel. What do you mean by big rocks? Because I've got an idea of what I think you mean by that, but I want to know your definition of, of Well, that. yeah, I was typically just trying to use those to define there's friction and there's things that'll keep you from moving, right? You've got the internal process of getting a deal done. You have shaping the, those are all those things that like a seller has to go through, whether it's creating a proposal, whether it's um, connecting with the economic buyer, which I think is crucial and most people are a little lazy about as sellers. Um, it's all the things that have to be done appropriately within the process. And when you do them appropriately, you're able to nudge that big rock out of the way, right? And then I got that done. I'm getting one step closer to a sale. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by the big stuff. And then I think the other thing, and I'll be quick on this is, False attribution is a real thing. And it's probably, if I were going to guess, I'll bet you it's, you know, 75 to 80% of all companies are measuring the wrong stuff, right? For their, especially for their sales force. You know, they're measuring, you know, new pipeline, bookings, and revenue probably. It's kind of the proven management approach, which hasn't done anyone any good because it's made the sales force expensive through turnover and through lack of performance. You know, but if you're measuring things like when we seek sales alpha, you know, we're trying to, we're measuring things metric wise on lead gen. What's the meeting rate, right? Proposal and pricing generation. Oh, those go together. Like, you know, you're looking at the margins. What are they closing? What's the duration of the things that they're closing? So what I would say is you've got to be able to look at the, the right things in order to actually use the numbers. Because most of the time when I walk into a company, they're not looking at all the right things. And let's be honest, being a seller is hard. Yes. It's hard because you're expected to be six or seven. Like you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a, in many cases, right? Now we've separated roles a little, but in many cases, you got to generate your own leads. You got to be able to write proposals. You got to be a master communicator. You got to be a negotiator. You've got to be able to review contracts. You've got to be an account manager. Like sales is one of the few things in the world where we do a really horrible job of letting people specialize. Mm-hmm. We've gotten a little better with like SDRs, BDRs, et cetera, but even that's wrong. Think about this. This is going to blow your mind. Ready? The ready. SDR role, the most important role in the company is generating new leads. Would you agree with that before I go on? You know what? I'm going to put it in one and two with another one to blow your mind. Customer service. Let's put those together. So go ahead. Okay. I don't know that I'll put them together yet, but we can, that may be another podcast. But for right now, please give me as a 1A, okay? 1A, go for it. And you know what we do? We put our most inexperienced people in the role. We tell them that they are the, we tell them where they're the lowest on the totem pole. We put the most inexperienced management on them. We give them the least amount of training. And we do everything we can to tell them, hey, you'll know when you're good when you're out of this role. Right. Are you kidding me? So let me get this straight. The average SDR stays in the role 18 months when they're finally paying for themselves and crushing appointment setting and quotas. And then you're going to move them out of the role. Instead of saying you're a rock star, look how we can give you a career here. Craziness. Listen, man, I started my sales career. uh, So I started my, my enterprise sales career at Red Hat, but I went from Red Hat to IBM where the inside sales team at Red Hat, they were rock stars and they were crushing their numbers and they felt like rock stars. It felt like being uh, in a boiler room kind of situation. It was a bunch of hot shot young guys and they enjoyed what they did and they were proud of their role. Literally the day I started at IBM, there was uh, an all hands call and the senior VP in charge of the inside sales team 
was on stage applauding the numbers that they were killing 300% here and there and said, we're starting to show the business how important we are and they're starting to respect us. That blew my mind. That inside sales, a step above SDR, was still considered second-class citizens in the business. Yeah. When, yeah. when they had so much more impact and so much more knowledge and time with the customer than any of the field reps did. And it blew my mind that the, that organizations didn't have the right perspective on how important and how critical that part of the the user's experience was. Yeah, that's and that's you know what, and that's indicative of the following. So one of my core philosophies is this, right? Is that you've got to be able to you've got to be able to take control of just the things you actually have some control of. And so many times, you know, I'll get with sales leadership, we'll talk, and they'll be like, "Well, they aren't listening to us, right? They're not getting the seller's perspective." Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, here's the gig, Joe, Jan, or Mary. You've got to earn your way to the table. And so for me, I firmly believe the following, and this, you'll hear me say this for the next 20 years, we know each other. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it is the job of sales to put so much pressure on the organization that they must become operationally more efficient. Mm. And that's, that's how you get the seat at the table, get the seller's perspective taken care of, and you start getting the things that will really, really move the business to the next level. But unfortunately kind of chicken and egg. We got to go out and right. go out there and do it today with the tools we have, but we have got to put that pressure on the organization to make them better. You know, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. Like we have to take care we in the sales world have to take care of our own performance to demand that attention. Um, the challenge is, <laughs> and you know, this as well, uh, when you're measured for your performance and you're putting the pressure on the, the two areas where the, the goalposts are always moves in operational efficiency. I was a process engineer for a while. You made a thousand units today. We need two thousand tomorrow. Same thing in sales. You know, you're always going to be at or around a hundred and something percent. You blow your number out, the number goes up. So we have to be able to articulate that constant, perpetual uh, growth and, and performance increase. That sales alpha that we do year in and year out as a sales team, and make sure we're able not only to do it and achieve it but articulate it back to the organization. You need to be able to show and communicate your value in those ways, in the terms that make sense to operations. And I think that comes from exposure. You got to know what they're looking at and what matters to them. And I think the way you've articulated sales alpha, brilliant, that you can show impact in this metric driven way that operations thinks and speaks. If more organizations can adopt what you're doing and say, hey, this is how we're incrementally increasing, then that gives you a better clearer message once your voice is heard. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, it is the point. I mean, what we're, what we try to work with is, Hey, you know, let's go, you could be in an industry that's growing at 2% great. And you're used to growing at 2% great. But if, what if you grow at four, that's a hundred percent over benchmark, right? You're in a business that's growing at 22% or an industry that's growing at 22%. Well, we got to get to 30, right? We've got to be able to determine that sales alpha is there. And part of it goes back to some of the stuff that you and I both think that's near and dear to our heart. And you've got to have the frameworks and the systems in place. And this is how you prove part of it that are, right? They're teachable, they're repeatable, and they're scalable. Because here's what your CFO and your COO, your CEO is probably okay in most cases, depending on what their background was, but your CFO and your COO, you know what they're saying? You know what they think of the CSO and the sales org? They think it's this mysterious black box. 
And that's why we have to fight so much harder for resources within the organization. Yes. Right. If I say to them, give me three sellers, it'll take six months. This is exactly what will happen. This is the output. This is the likelihood. Do it the first time. It's going to be a little bit of a pain to get budget. Do it the second time after you've succeeded the first time. Watch what happens. Do it the third time. They'll say, how many do you need? Yeah. Excellent. Dude, I think if you can do this work with the sales team, and I'm pushing on the other side with the senior leadership team, somewhere in the middle, there's going to be this beautiful marriage between uh, a more clearly uh, defined and, and systematized sales team and an operations team that's looking to understand them better because they understand the value they drive. Uh, I think in the middle of it all is the, the skill platform and foundation that we're doing here at Aslan Training together. And uh, as we wrap up here, uh, let's just share like where you're trying to take your business and, and how Aslan is going to help with that. Oh, perfect. Yeah. I, I look at Aslan as a fantastic partner. You know, they've been ranked as one of the top sales training uh, companies in the world, you know, for an extended period of time, probably close to two decades, if memory serves me correctly. And so, you know, there's two things that I really need to be able to be successful for my clients, for them to look and say, you know what, Ken, you and your team did fantastic things. And there's two things. Well, one is there's some of that industry, there's some of that knowledge, right, that's baked in from doing the thing, doing the deed every single day and being able to bring an objective viewpoint based on experience. The second thing, though, which is absolutely crucial and critical and where Aslan really fits into my world is to provide the frameworks that are repeatable, to provide training systems, whether it's sales leadership or whether or not it's this frontline sellers, whether it's the account managers, to provide the frameworks that put in place a common language between sales and sales management um, to allow them to actually manage and teach and help people develop as sales and sales team. So it's that content and that frameworks that we use for the training perspective from Aslan um, that really, really is going to do great things for our business because, you know, focused on, we serve, we serve businesses that are B2B, they're B2B sales companies. And we go all, all sizes from, you know, small mom and pop, you know, I wouldn't even call them startups anymore, more businesses of say 15, $20 million all the way up to uh, working with, you know, top 10 fortune or fortune top 10 brands. So Aslan really supports uh, my ability to be able to put out fantastic trainings that are impactful for sales forces and leadership. I, I agree. And again, that 25 year foundation has been helpful for, for me and the sales synergistics platform, uh, being able to add the likes of HP and, and American Airlines to the clients that I wouldn't have access to without them has been huge. And, and having conversations with those senior leaders in four different countries just this year alone. That's been amazing. So uh, great organization. I'm glad to be uh, fighting a good fight with you, getting more people out here, uh, putting their customers first, being other centered. And uh, dude, I think that we've got more conversations to have about our uh, correspondent philosophies. Maybe even once we get out of this uh, weird period that we're in, we can share some stages together and some, some workshops and such. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely looking forward to it. I think that would be Awesome, because it's fun to rap about this stuff. But more importantly, man, if you're a sales leader or a seller and you listen to this, um, you know, whether I may have not said anything that resonated with you, and that's cool because sometimes it won't. Jason may have said three things, but there's if you're going to take the time, you're going to be awesome about getting self-educated, write something down and take action. Because as Mark Zuckerberg says, done is better than perfect. 
So put yourself in motion and pivot as needed, but um, applauding all those who are listening to the great work that you're putting out there, Jason. Hey, that is a perfect finish. No way to follow that. Thank you so much for your time uh, and expect to be back here again real soon. Have a great day.